Welcome to the 73rd episode of Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. This week we kick off a special series with the Santa Barbara Leadership Team. I'm going to be talking to property owners, business owners, architects, housing advocates, transportation leaders, really just anybody with a stake in what's going on downtown as it relates to economic vitality. So I'm hoping you'll enjoy this podcast, kicking it off with Richard Birdie, who's a longtime downtown property owner. And one of his big issues has been homelessness. So he's going to talk candidly about his concerns about the issue and uh, what he describes as a lack of leadership at Santa Barbara City Hall. What I found most important or most interesting about this podcast, however, was Mr. Birdie's discussion of his life story and his rise and his humble beginnings and how he came from where he started and became one of Santa Barbara's most prominent and influential property owners. He's outspoken. He's candid. uh, He doesn't really censor his language too much. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. And thanks again to the Santa Barbara Leadership Team for sponsoring this series about anything and everything downtown Santa Barbara. Oh, and I almost forgot. Please take a few moments to review this podcast on whatever streaming platform you're listening to. Uh, Give us a five-star review and uh, share the word. Spread the podcast. Let more people know about it. I really appreciate all your support. And there's a lot of good, exciting things coming up. So thanks again and have a great day. Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's my pleasure today to be here with Richard Birdie, who is a very well-known, very prominent, um, outspoken, uh, well-spoken, uh, you know, property owner. Uh, you know, uh, Richard, uh, you know, you've done a lot for this community uh, a lot over the years in this town. So it's my pleasure to, to talk to you. How are you doing today, Richard? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about um, downtown and Santa Barbara. We obviously are in this state of transition with State Street. You know, the pandemic caused this immediate closure of nine blocks of State Street to cars. Uh, We're seeing this evolution. We've got this outdoor dining. We've got parklets. We've got a lot of change going on, but we've also have this lingering issue that you've been really outspoken with as it relates to homelessness and what is the city going to do to fix these problems. So I want to have a conversation with you about this today. Um, you know, somebody who's well connected to downtown property owners. Um, can you talk a little bit about Santa Barbara, downtown, State Street, homelessness? Uh, what's going on from your perspective and what can be done to change it? Well, your question is like what the city of Santa Barbara talks about too much for one subject. So (laughs) I'll I'll redefine it. Homelessness is a broad word that covers many types of, of people without places to live. And some of them are in, uh, you know, decent folks that just ran on hard financial times. Some are living in their cars and trying to find a place to park. Others are wandering around trying to find a place to sleep. Then you have what I call vagrants, and there's different types. There's criminal types. There's uh, mentally insane types. There's addicted types. Uh, there's young people that just just like to do what's not right to do. 
and we can't deal with all of them as homeless. Uh, we have to prioritize. Uh, if I were the benevolent dictator, I would move the vagrants, any type of vagrant, out of the central area of the city, State Street. I try to get them out of the city, but you know, you're not gonna do that, but at least State Street and other major streets, they don't belong there. They interfere with business, they interfere with people's rights. They, you know, we worry about their rights under the constitution and, and, and we don't worry about the other people who have rights under the constitution who go to work every day, take risks in running business, uh, support themselves what have you, those rights are all slowly, slowly being taken away. Uh, you know, the rule of law is disappearing. Uh, I understand now if you commit a felony of less than $10,000, there's not much that's going to happen to you. So in a way, that's a blessing. Let's go steal. And uh, that becomes contagious. You know, I believe in the old concept, monkey see, monkey do. And you show people a bad way to do it that's beneficial, they'll go a bad way. And I think a lot of this homeless stuff is a bad way. And I think it's a cancer, a contagious thing. So what would I do? Uh, I would enforce the rules of law on State Street and move the people along on State Street. I, would, I wouldn't try to do it on a local level. Uh, the problem is much bigger than the city, this county, even the state. It's a national problem. It's a worldwide problem. Um, we don't have the facilities in Santa Barbara to provide housing for these people. We're just playing around in a, in a puddle of gasoline with a match and we're gonna burn everything up. Uh, providing housing downtown, 300 square feet. I'll talk to that in a minute, but that makes no sense to me for the immediate, immediate and long-term impact on this community, which, you know, we're very fortunate. We live in a place created by God or some maker. I believe in God. It's a beautiful place. It's unique in the world. Uh, you just go offshore and look back on it or go up in the mountains, look down on it. It's breathtaking. And it has all the attributes for a wonderful vacation place. Many of us are fortunate to live here. Today I had lunch up at uh, the Coomber Country Club overlooking the first and the ninth holes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was with my friend, Bob Bryant. And I said, Bob, we didn't fly here for a week's vacation. We drove from home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is home. And we're not respecting it. We're not taking good care of it. Now, there are places where we are taking good care of it but we're not taking good care of it in our commercial areas. So I could go on and on with it. I would, provide, I, I, I would try to get, I, I can't, I don't, can't, I can't give you, I don't know what we're going to do with insane people. You can't transition them up and out. They need care. Do they need to live in a little box of six, 300 square feet with staffs coming around to see them individually or, they can go someplace for their medications, which doesn't work. It'd be very costly and it would be very disturbing to the neighbors that, you know, go to work every day, have children, uh, own a home. So I don't know how that, that needs an institution. And uh, 
that should be done by at least the county and the cities within the county as a, as a unit. We should pull our money together someplace where we have the land to do it. The people with addictions and stuff, alcohol, drugs, uh, people with post-trauma from the wars, uh, they have to be institutionalized too. They have to be rehabbed. They can move up and out, but they need an environment where they can learn new ways of thinking and new ways of doing. They have to be retrained. We took, I was in the Marine Corps for four years. I enlisted. And the first four months was four months of boot camp and one month of what they call first infantry training. They turned me from a confused young man. They turned me into a, a, a possible murderer, a defender of our rights, killing other people. And I never quite comprehended who were the enemy. You know, I missed the wars. I didn't go to Korea and I didn't go to Vietnam, but I witnessed them. And Korea, I just thought it was a, a game of killing people. I didn't see the benefit in it at all for anybody. Uh, same thing with Vietnam. Uh, it was just a killing game. Uh, you know, they'd send out our troops and at the end of the day, they take a head count. How many of ours got killed or injured? A thousand, sir. How many of the others got killed or injured? 50,000, sir. Good day. Wonderful day. <laughs> Give me a break. So these kids that were in these combats that came home from it, they're different. And they have to be rehabilitated. I don't know if I'm speaking the truth here, but when they get out of the military, they're discharged into the community. I think they should go back to rehab. I think they have to be reprogrammed. They were very deliberately programmed to be able to kill another person. It's not just something that happens. They were trained to do that. And uh, when they had to do it, it became imprinted in their subconscious. They had to get over the shock of doing it the first, the second, the third time. Pretty soon it might've become a game. Might've been exciting and fun. Well, you got to get rid of that. You got to fix that, and that takes takes a lot of work. So, discharging them into the public doesn't make sense to me. I think we should be phased out of the military. Uh, the mentally insane. I have the misfortune of having a mother who was in Camarillo for seven years. Uh, she went in uh, just before I joined the Marine Corps. I joined the Marine Corps because I didn't like myself. <laughs> I was lost, and. Uh, and when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went to college. And when I got out of college, uh, I came back to Santa Barbara. So my father, who was a, a good man, but a difficult man, he was very, very disciplined. Uh, he, was, he, was in, he was like me in a way. I didn't want to be like him, but he got angry easy over little things because he didn't like mistakes. He didn't. He was highly opinionated, which I have been too. Um, so I, I, I enlisted to get away from his life and, and, and forget about my mother. Uh, when I graduated college, I came back to Santa Barbara. It was my ambition to visit and then travel this, the, uh, the country to find a place to call home because I was born and raised in Connecticut. 
I came to Santa Barbara. It was a beautiful, beautiful piece of dirt with beautiful plants, but I didn't, I hated it because of the, the family situation. I had no, 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 I just hated it. I lived in a, a little box that was in my head that was in Connecticut. Mm. Uh, so anyhow, I went to Marine Corps. When I got out, I came to Santa Barbara. I met my father who was building a building in Montecito and uh, visited with him. And he asked me if I would stay in Santa Barbara. He wanted to go away for a year. And I said, sure. So that day I got a job at Bartlett Pringle and Wolf. That was on a Thursday. It was the day Kennedy was assassinated. And on Monday, I started working for Bartlett Pringle and Wolf. And there was a Bartlett and there was a Pringle and there was a Wolf. It was a small firm, three partners and about four or five staff. Uh, Stan Bartlett He turned out to be an incredibly important person in my life. He and his wife, uh, he was a nice man, a smart man, uh, unassuming man. And uh, when my father left, I started taking my mother home uh, from Camarillo. And after a few weeks, I kept her. I hoped that I would be able to make her better and be the mother that I thought she was before she went in. She was sad and depressed, but she wasn't crazy. The woman I took out of Camarillo, I would call crazy. She was fat. She grinded her teeth. She bounced left foot, right foot. She looked in the mirror and talked to herself. She thought she was the Virgin Mary. She thought this, that, and the other thing. It was difficult. And I kept her at home with me for the year. And I had no one to talk to. So that's when Bartlett his wife and, and Stan became very important. I just stopped by their house in the evening without an invite and would sit with them in the kitchen and talk about how to deal with the suffering I was going through. But they helped me. And uh, when my father came back, uh, we got into a conflict about my mother. And so I started my own life. And uh, I became a CPA but I didn't want to stay and be a junior partner in a firm with three partners on top of me or four at the time. I thought I could do better on my own. And uh, I also had a bigger ambition than being an accountant. I was, I, I, I thought I had an entrepreneurial kind of feeling and I, my reasoning said, you need to know people. Uh, it ain't what you know, it's who you know. And as an accountant, I believed I would get to know a lot of people in a lot of different industries and professions. And the reason why I believe that is my father's partner, one of them, Sid Palmer in Connecticut, was a CPA and he owned a third of the construction company. So, and he was very good to me, he was a mentor. So I became an accountant wanting to have opportunities and they presented, I had many, many opportunities and I, I took care of them. Uh, I'll sidetrack for a moment. I, um, when I decided I wanted to leave uh, the, the firm and start my own practice, I had no money. And my father and I were not on good terms. I had disappointed him. And rightfully, he just more or less financially washed his hands of me. So I, I, I couldn't leave without some, some capital. 
So I thought maybe I could do bookkeeping at the night. And uh, we had a meeting, Bartlett Pringle and Wolf, and, and I can still see it in my mind in Phil Pringle's office. I was standing, they were sitting. And um, I said, I'd like to do bookkeeping at night. Do you mind? They all really minded. No, you can't do bookkeeping at night. You'll interfere with our, our business. Okay. Phil Pringle suggested, why don't you become a gardener? And I was serious. And I said, well, you know, I didn't want to work on Saturdays and Sundays. I want to work at night. So for some reason, the thought came in, why can't I be a janitor? So I said, can I be a janitor? They said, sure. I said, can I start cleaning your building? They said, fine. So the next night I became the janitor. And I built the business up. Uh, it was a very, very good business. I had my brother eventually came in. Then we had his friend Reggie come in. And then we had about three or four other people. We had a lot of good clients. We had the Giordano stores. We had Social Security. We had many clients. And the way I would get clients initially is I'd go out and go to these various places where I did the accounting. And I'd talk to them about their maintenance, their bathrooms. And it wasn't good. It was mediocre cleaning. So I said, well, I'd like to have a chance to clean it up. What do you pay? And they tell me, I said, I can do it for that. Let me come and give you a free demonstration. Well, after every demonstration, I got the job. And that's how I built it. And then the reputation carried it. Then I was able to start my accounting business uh, with very little business, you know, pay for an office, pay for a part of a secretary. I had two other guys sharing the office. And uh, for reasons that the county business grew very rapidly. And I had no time for cleaning the toilets or floors. So I gave the business to my brother and Reggie. And uh, I grew my accounting practice, which grew nicely. And uh, it, it did everything I thought it would do and more. But it was totally consuming. When you sell yourself as the product, you know, how many pairs of shoes can you sell in a day? Well, you can sell a lot more time, but you don't have all the time you need. So you, you can have shoes in a warehouse, but you don't have time in a warehouse. You just keep running out of time, running out of the day. And I had no time for much of anything except work. And, uh, and then I met a wonderful lady, Marguerite, my wife of 50 54 years now, and the mother of our two children, and my very, very best friend. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time for her, but somehow I managed to propose and, some, and something made her say yes. So we got married and uh, I continued to be a workaholic. Uh, we were lucky to get pregnant four months after we were married. And John Paul was a product of that. And then a year and a half later, Michelle. So Marguerite was very busy being a homemaker. I was very busy being a, a man without, with no time. I was out of time all the time. And then after the children grew up, John Paul went off to Pepperdine and I came home and uh, the house was sort of empty without him. So I'd go into his bedroom and think about, whew, I wanted to be such a much better father than my father, but I wasn't. I was the same thing. Out of time, anxious, quick to get angry, demanding. And uh, 
you know, I actually cried about it. And, and I thought about what am I going to do? You know, the cement of our marriage was two children. And a big chunk of that just left and wouldn't be back. So I sold out of the accounting business to some CPAs that worked for me. And they've had it ever since. In the last couple of years, they've all retired and other people have taken it over. Mm-hmm. But um, I got rid of the accounting business, but I had plenty of other things. I had a moving business. I had a data processing business. I had real estate. But they didn't take a lot of time. They were very well organized by themselves. So I tried very hard to be gentler than gentle, better than better to my wife and my daughter. And uh, John Paul, I had a rough time with for many years. Uh, But in recent years, uh, we have a wonderful relationship. So I can, I'm very proud of the fact that our home is full of love and goodwill to each other. And I've tried to change myself, but that was a slower process. Uh, I think I've made strides in that. But life was not easy. For me, life was a difficult trip. And uh, by hard work and some wonderful mentoring and persistence and determination, uh, here I am. (laughs) You know, um, a lot of people sort of see you as as you are now, you know, in this sort of uh, very successful property owner who's outspoken in Santa Barbara. And, you know, you've shared a lot of really touching details already about your life and, and how, you know, how you, how you lived your life and sort of your approach to being a father and husband and just being a man and, you know, how you were willing to, to be the janitor in order to, to work and build your business. And a lot of people sort of feel as though like, oh, well, they've always been wealthy, right? They were born into this wealth. Uh, You know, clearly Richard um, obviously was born into wealth, you know, kind of thing. And you've touched upon it already, but can you talk about uh, your childhood? Um, I know we've talked in the past for a story that I did. Um, did, Were you born with a silver spoon in your mouth? Or uh, can you talk about what it's like for you to grow up? I had parents that were devoted parents. I don't know that they were good parents because they didn't know how to parent, but they, they, they provided us with food and a place to sleep. And as a child, I grew up where there were lots of children. So there was lots of fun, but you know, to paint a picture about it, we were not wealthy. My father was a bricklayer. Uh, I was born in 1936. I believe that's the depression. And my mother was a young lady who lived lived in the worst part of New Britain you could imagine. Her parents came from Bari, Italy. They were peasants, really peasants. Her mother, uh, I knew her mother, I didn't know her father, he died when my mother was 14. But her mother wore these uh, formless cotton dresses uh, with the gray hair rolled up in a bun, very withered and tired looking. Uh, they lived a hard life, a hard life. My life wasn't like that. My, we lived in some of those surroundings, but 
you know, I didn't have a father who was sick all the time. I didn't have a mother who drank and worked in the factory making plates with presses, you know, banging out plates. My brother didn't go shine shoes at Central Park when he was a little boy. I didn't have any of that. I didn't go out and look for coal in the streets or follow the coal truck and try to get pieces to bring home to put in the kitchen stove. I had none of that. My mother lived that. That's a horrible existence. And she married my father. I think she married him to escape. My father's father was an immigrant. I uh, came from uh, Northern Italy. He ended up in New Britain. He was a Mason in Italy and he uh, somehow became a builder and he built houses and then he built tenement houses and little strip centers and stuff. It appears he was very successful, but they never lived big time. They always lived in one of their tenement houses. And then before the depression or during the depression, he had terrible asthma, very bad asthma. And the story is he was told to go back to Italy. So he went back to Italy and he lived in a village down by the lake called uh, Bartolino, which is on Lake Lago di Garda, Northern Italy. And he spent his life there. He lived well. I guess he left his parent, his family pretty well off. Uh, but they were peasants. They didn't, they didn't, my grandmother didn't speak English. Uh, she was a nice lady. And I used to visit her and we'd talk and all we do is talk louder and louder. And somehow we understood each other, although we didn't. And, uh, the, 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 those people had a hard time. I didn't have a time. I was born, my father was not a rich man. The first home I lived in was an apartment that his sister rented. My mother and father and I lived in a, in a room, a bedroom. I don't know how long we lived there because I was just an infant. The next place we lived was in a, a triplex, a three-story triplex, where there were a lot of these apartments and stuff in a walk up. And uh, at that time, you know, we had people would come around with their wagons and stuff to sell things to you. There were no supermarkets. There were corner grocery stores. It was a different life. Uh, but the kids had fun. But we also were told, you know, you're to, see, you, you're to be seen and not, not heard. Be quiet. So it was a lot of discipline. And, you know, whenever anybody gives you discipline without an explanation, you can get upset. So I, 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 I thought I had a bad life because of my father's and my mother's being depressed. But I didn't. I just did an autobiography, actually a biography, it turns out to be, with Nick Welch. We spent two years doing research. He did. And so I got to see the whole life on the table. Now, I thought that table was all bad. But actually, they're just spots of bad. When I put them together, they're just a little brick amongst thousands of bricks. Most of my life was good. You know, I mean, when you're a kid and you're having fun with your friends, it's good life. Yeah. And, uh, but it was just some of the bad experiences over, overrode everything. Uh, it's, um, then the, from, we, lived, we lived in the tenement house. Then we lived in a one-room trailer on a construction site. I believe there were four of us, my mother, my father, my sister, Arlene, who had been born, and me. 
And then from there, we moved into a military housing projects that were built for the, for the military for the war. They were not permanent facilities. The main street was, was paved and the other streets to the units were dirt in the summertime. In the wintertime, there were mud. And they all had those T-bar clotheslines out front. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right. And then they all had coal bins. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but there were a lot of kids. And so it was a a terrible place to live, but it wasn't. I slept warmly. I ate three meals a day. I had clothes. You know, I had a lot of friends. And then from there, we moved into another housing projects up in uh, Connecticut called Ledgecrest Housing Projects, which was a public housing place. And, uh, you know, it's, it was a tough place, uh, but a lot of fun. They had a rec center. Again, a lot of kids, so there was a lot of stuff to do. And uh, my father was, at that time, rather successful, but he wouldn't... Uh, he, he, he didn't like debt. So whatever he owned, he paid for. So he decided to build a beautiful home in an area called Belvedere uh, in the middle of a park owned by Stanley at one time, Stanley, the founder of Stanley Works. It was beautiful. And so we lived there for about eight years. And that's when my mother started to get sick. And my father's construction company had gotten very, very large. And he was the outside superintendent of everything. And he had to make all the supply lines work. He had to move the people around. At that time, general contractors employed a lot of people. And so they had to move them around because jobs are, there's there's just certain programs that happen at certain times. You you need carpenters when you're doing a lot of framing. You need cement work when you're doing cement. You need bricklayers. But you got to play some other places or you lay them off. My father didn't like laying anybody off. So the company was able to get jobs that gave them a supply line for their employees. And my father had to move everybody around. And it was an overwhelming job. And my mother was, you know, she was not well. And so I graduated high school. And that summer, I was going to go to MIT to be a civil engineer. He came home and he said, uh, I sold the business. Well, I never thought about being a civil engineer. It was just something that I was going to be. My name is Richard Birdie. I never questioned that. And then all of a sudden I had to take an objective look at what was it to be a civil engineer? It was, it was hell on wheels, uh, at least in Connecticut. Mm. You worked in the four seasons. You had all these different things. Oh, who, who wants that? So I gave that up. But I had no, I had no path, so I floundered. I floundered until I went in the Marine Corps, and while I was there, I thought about what to do, and thought oh, I'll be an accountant because of Sid Palmer, and so that's how that happened. But uh, then out here we moved. I don't know how many times we moved. When he came to Santa Barbara, it was by accident, so he stayed in the motel for two weeks with my siblings. I wasn't here; I was back in Connecticut, and. Uh, and then he bought a little house in San Roque, which was way out at the end of town. And then I went to University of Connecticut and my first semester, I cut 105 hours of classes and somehow I passed. 
into the next semester, but halfway through the next semester, I was just in a dark space, so I withdrew. I had a car and I drove to California. And I stayed here until I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And uh, I tried to go in business when I was 19. And uh, I got a lot of money from my father to try. I don't know how he did it, it just happened. I asked, he wrote a check and that was that. But I lost it all. And uh, he had nothing to do with me after that. So that was my life. But it was a good life in spite of these little traumatic things that happened. Uh, if I was occupied playing, I didn't think about anything bad. It was only when I was quiet and felt self-pity that <laughs> these things haunted me. You, know, you have this really rich story and this long history. <clears throat> in terms of Santa Barbara and <clears throat> downtown, is there a moment in time? Is there a decade? Is there a period where things got worse from your perspective as it relates to what we're seeing with homelessness? Um, I grew up here. I feel like there's always been homeless in Santa Barbara. There's always been homeless people at the parks. It's just sort of part of what, you know, you sort of grow accustomed to. Uh, in your perspective, has it gotten worse? And when did that start? It's gotten worse. Uh-huh. And uh, only because we, 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 don't, we don't take any action for it. You know, when my mother was sick, they had a mental institution. Yeah. And my mother put herself there, but the state would put people there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they didn't know what they were doing to people. I mean, they actually had a thing called rebooting, where they put you inside of a bag and in a chair and dunk you in water, real <laughs> cold water. And let you get chilled down there and pop you up again, figuring that it would reboot you. But uh, they did horrible things, shock treatments, lobotomies. They did horrible things. Uh, they made people worse than what they were. But uh, today we have many, we have so much more going for it. But uh, State Street, when I got involved in State Street, it was not a desirable place to be. Uh, it had J.C. Penney's. That was pretty good. But you get down, uh, you get down in the, for sure in the six, five, four, the lower blocks of State Street were really bad. They're very bad. And, uh, you know, the rents down here were in some places 10 cents a square foot. Can you imagine? That included all the expenses. Mm -hmm. So you imagine what you got for that. Uh, the streets were the old streets that they had trolley cars on and the sidewalks were old concrete. Uh, there weren't court, it was a mess. And then the city got ambitious and they got a lot of free money from the redevelopment. And they put the brick sidewalks in and they put the Passe on the Wavo in and they tried to revitalize it and it did for a while. Uh, but in recent years, it's been decaying. The city is not a good keeper of our properties. I don't know what they're all about with all their staffs. They've got parks people, they've got road people, they got people, people, people. And they can't keep our street, you can't keep State Street clean. The sidewalks look like asphalt, they're brick. The streets are dirty, they should be clean. Not a big chore. I could fix the problem, but not in the bureaucracy of government. Mm 
If it was my private property tomorrow morning, there'd be people down there cleaning it. And also there'd be people down there moving the homeless apart. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I'd be redesigning the parklets so that there were some consistency and some beauty to them. Mm-hmm. Some of the parklets are nice and some look like slums. Some of the parklets are set seven feet from the center line of the road. Mm-hmm. Some are right on the center line of the road. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Supposed to be at least seven feet. I would make it 10 feet, then we'd have a 20 foot path, which is almost like a two lane road. I think we could serve parades on it. We could have farmers markets on it, and we can still have the parklands. The other thing that's recently happened is the city, always, you know, these people, they decided, somebody decided that the sidewalk should not have any seats on them unless there is an eight foot clearance for, for walking. Yeah. Okay. Well, it used to be four feet because it had to take care of the handicap. The, where did this come from? I don't get it. The other thing is, you know, the city is not business friendly. It just is not. I don't know why not. I can give you a lot of reasons why I would assume not. But the facts are it's not in most people in business business friendly. Uh, one thing is they let people go out on the sidewalks with seats. Right away, they got to try. Right away, they have to. I got to wait for that to hang up. Just a moment. Um, they start charging seat rentals. Yeah. Then a group of us got mad about it, so they charge an annual fee now. But instead of letting people make more money, they want people to pay more of this, more of that, and make less money. Okay? The city is a very hard landlord, not a friendly landlord. Mm-hmm. Okay? The city is very quick to try, or some of the people in the city are very quick to try and put rent controls on. <laughs> Why? Because the rents are too high. Why? Because it costs too much money to replace them. Why? I don't know why. It just costs a lot of money anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the federal government's giving money to people so they don't have to work. And they're getting so much money, they don't want to work unless they can make more money. So in a way, the federal government, which hasn't been able to come up with a minimum wage, is forcing some kind of minimum wage to happen. Because you're not going to get employees unless you beat the welfare. So we're going to have to pay more money. Okay, good. I don't mind it. Everything's going to cost more money. Inflation is a middle class down enemy. Mm-hmm. Okay? A millionaire can afford a 10% increase in, in, in expenses. Okay? Food, gasoline, cars, whatever. A person working for $30 an hour, you raise their costs 10%, they're going to have to think twice about what they're going to spend their money on. Okay, and then the government's going to say, well, we've got to pay them more money. Okay, we pay them more money. What happens? The things they wanted to buy cost more money. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you people out there, wake up. Inflation is not your friend. It's what about the, the 500 block? What about the 500 block of State Street? Uh, is a lot of people downtown since they closed to cars, at least, you know, some of the blocks. Is that a success to see all those people eating at restaurants in the middle of the street and just a lot of vibrancy now? Well, I can't speak to the 500 block reception. 
I look and if there's a lot of business, a lot of people eating, a lot of going on, I would assume there's good business down there. Uh, it's, it's not organized. Uh, it's not bad, but it's not orderly. There's not, there's not a path that you can go straight down state street. I don't think state street should be for cars. I think it should be for pedestrians. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should be for bicycles, skateboards, scooters. These things all have uh, motors now and they can go 40 miles an hour. Uh, I just think it should be a pedestrian thing and occasionally opened up for vehicles like for farmers markets or for parades. But the norm is just a, a mall, a pedestrian mall. And, uh, and I think it would be very, I, 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 think the, I think the 500 block is very exciting. I own property in 600 block. They're doing better. They're doing better. We've got two pop-ups there that we give, almost let them stay there for, keep the lights on. They're doing business. Mm -hmm. We've got some established people there that are doing the best business they've ever done. So I think it's working. And I think if it was more orderly, it would work better. And if there were less homeless people interfering with things, it will work even better yet. Now, now, Richard, you've been around, obviously, and you know how this works. Uh, elected officials or people run for office, they always make promises. They're going to do this and that and that. They get elected and very little happens. Uh, we know the law does not allow uh, homeless individuals to be you know, taken against their will and you know, put in a, a facility. These are you know, complex issues, but I mean, I wonder, are you, um, are you, are you, um, do you have any hope in elected officials? I mean, we have a campaign, but I mean, do, do you think they're the answer? Or are they the problem? And just, I mean, is this not just something we just have to live with uh, in 2021? That's a, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I could, I could talk about it, but uh, I don't have an answer. I think, I think government's too big. I think there's too many people with a voice in government about how to do things that don't do things. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very frustrating. Um, if you were the mayor of Santa Barbara, what, what side of policy or direction would you try to take the city in terms of some of these key downtown issues? What would I do? Well, what could I do? Uh, if I'm a benevolent dictator and have the power, I would get rid of some of these committees or I would restrict their ability to take time, you know, get one or two shots at it and leave it alone. Mm -hmm. I would, uh, I would move the homeless along. I would go against uh, the state policy. I'd probably get impeached. Yeah. Uh, I probably would. Uh, I would, I would get the streets clean tomorrow. I would keep the homeless from being vagrants on the street. I wouldn't let them sleep there. I wouldn't let them camp there. I wouldn't let them have a picnic there. I wouldn't let them loiter there. I'd make city ordinances. I mean, I don't know why we can't do things to protect our city. Can't we have our own ordinances and enforce them? I wouldn't defund the police. If they're not trained properly, I'd improve their training. But I wouldn't want to walk around in a policeman's shoes. You know how scary that is? Every day you get up, you got to go to this crazy job. How would you like it? I wouldn't like it at all. Uh, it's a difficult job. 
And yeah, some people do it poorly and some people do it well. Most do it okay. And, uh, you know, we make a big deal out of the police doing something wrong, but we do nothing about us doing something wrong. We find a way to rationalize it. We give you therapy. What about a homeless shelter? You know, we don't have, you know, when when it gets real cold, we have the warming centers, we got the winter shelters, but we don't have a year round place for homeless people to go. Now, obviously they, there are places, there's a rescue mission, there's Salvation Army, and there are programs. Um, a lot of them, they don't want to participate in. Uh, they might be full, but I mean, would you advocate for uh, building a big homeless facility where people can be um, instead of being downtown? If you were homeless by desire, I would make you live in a homeless community. Okay, and I'd have different facilities because homeless is such a broad word. Yeah. I'd have a facility for the, 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 the veterans who have been discharged and have those problems with killing people. I would have a facility where they could work their way out of that every day. And it might be structured just like the military. You know, you get your rank, you get promoted, you get, you get demoted, you get to be disciplined. And uh, the... Uh, I'd have I'd have, I, people that do bad things. I would make them do serve some. I would I put I would put them in some kind of a work program. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'd have to have a tent city out in the county someplace where we bust them every night and every day we take them and make them do public service, clean the streets, clean the parks, do something, uh, make something, learn something, but don't sit around and mumble at yourself. And those that do, I try to get them some kind of medication that helps them. Mm-hmm. But we're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there are, there are a lot of uh, groups and organizations that work to address these issues with the homelessness. We know that according to their data, what they're trying to do is reach out individually, make contact. It takes multiple attempts to get somebody who's chronically homeless. And these are the ones that you're talking about uh, to say, I want to accept services. And so we've seen uh, fewer um, of, of those individuals on State Street because these organizations are, are, are connecting with them and they're, they're, they're doing it over and over and over and try to, and try to help them. You're not going to be able to help, to help everybody. But it's a tough thing, Richard, because you can't, as you know, I mean, you know, I asked you what you would do, of course. So I, I asked you, but, you know, you can't, you can't go round them up and send them off to a camp and have them work. Uh, it's, it's just not uh, feasible. And, and you'd have a lot of groups who would protest that because they say that it was, it's inhumane, you know, to do something like that. What do you think of the hotels? The city, the city uh, is renting a hotel. They, they took people out of the encampments because of the fire zones. Is that a good solution or, or not? What do you think of that? I don't think it's a, I, I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't want to live near one. I wouldn't want to have a business near one. Yeah. Um, they're not properly built to administer real good help. It's, 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 it's something, but it's really, in my opinion, amounts to nothing. Four months. If I understand, what are you going to do at the end of four months? Uh, what are they going to be like at the end of four months? You go up to, uh, pepper tree where they have, I think one wing of it is, was homeless. 
but the Pepper Tree Restaurant is out of business. Been there forever. Been there forever. Now, did did that do it, or did the pandemic do it? I don't know. Um, I think you know we're a society with laws. Without laws, without rule of law, we become anarchy. We become little gangs, little pockets of, and that's what's happening to us. You know, my rights as a part of the big thing, as a part of the contributor, if you will, my rights are diminishing every day. Can you talk a little bit uh, as we wrap up here? What, what, do you, what do you want to see going forward? What, what do you want to see if you could snap your fingers, you know, and, and, and think, you know, realistically, pragmatically, what are some little things Santa Barbara can do here in the next couple of years to, to well, sort of make it better? Go, I want to take a little more of your time. Go back to when this pandemic thing started. When Kathy Marilla became mayor, mm-hmm. I started challenging her. Yeah. And I made an appointment to meet with her in her office. She accepted it. And I brought to her surprise a few people with me. And she said, you're ganging up on me. I said, no, I just want to express to you our concern about downtown. So she finally calmed down and she formed a committee to look at what we're going to do. We had one meeting and another. So then after that, they formed another committee that invited none of us, other people into it. I don't know what they did, but nothing happened. After that, they got all the architects to draw pictures about what was going to be. There was a lot of hullabaloo, a lot of pictures posted up around town. Nothing happened. What are they doing today? They started a new commission or a new committee with three of them on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can't do their job as city council members, but they're going to do an advisory job as committee members. I don't get it. It's going to be more, 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 nothing, more delays. The the, uh, grand jury did a report on the city's incompetence. What have they done about it? To my knowledge, nothing. They spent $80,000 on an expert to advise them what to do. What have they done about it? They've done nothing that I know of. They keep talking and talking and talking. You can't do that in business. You know, you have to take action. The action I would do tomorrow is there'd be people cleaning the sidewalks in the streets. There'd be police patrolling with the right to enforce the rules. The law. Okay. And then also, I would work on getting the parklets nice, attractive, uh, off the center line so you could have traffic for parades and stuff and farmers markets. That's what I would do immediately. Okay. What I would do long term, I try to figure out what to do about housing in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wouldn't build boxes of 300 square feet. I'd build normal housing. Where could I build housing? Probably no place in Santa Barbara without overcrowding it. So what would I do? I got to work with the county and the other cities in the community. We all have to put our money together to make it happen. I'll just make this up. Where would I go? Lompoc. Why would I go there? Because it's a community that needs help and has plenty of land. Well, how are they going to get back and forth? We've got to provide some kind of commuter system. We have to have a way for people to get here. 
You know, you go in a crowded area like Los Angeles, you're going to drive an hour, two hours to get to work. Lompoc to Santa Barbara's, if you had a rapid transit, it's 45 minutes. So we could do things, but we're not long-term planning. We've got short-term problems that we don't want to solve because we want a long-term, we want to solve everything long-term. Do what you can do today. Clean State Street. Move the homeless off of State Street. Use the laws. Give the police back some power. Okay? And do the parklets, because the parklets are there to stay. But make them make it wonderful. And keep it wonderful. Keep it clean. Keep it orderly. Uh, that's what I do immediately. Housing uh, for the homeless, for the, for the different types. That's a long-term project. Right now, I would do for the, the people that can't pay their way because they're neat people and they don't have a, a support system. They don't have an extended family. They just have themselves. And they popped out at 65 with Social Security. Can't live. What would I do with them? I try to relocate them to where they could live or I'd subsidize them so they could live. But we can't make Santa Barbara work for everybody. It's just not going to. And I don't think we have the right to destroy its beauty. I don't. You know, I don't think we have the right to do that. We have the right to leave it better than we found it. And I think we're on the path of leaving it worse than we find it. And since I've been here and it's been 1955 we got here, uh, San Roque, from Alamar all the way out, it was either lemon orchards or, or open land. Highway 101 was a two-lane two lane road, an asphalt road. Okay? That's what it was. State Street crossed, uh, and other streets crossed Highway 101, they had stoplights. And Highway 101 has restaurants and other things you could pull right off of it and go into a restaurant. That's what Santa Barbara was. Now it's traffic bumper to bumper, people blowing their horns, nobody being polite, crowded, looking for more room to make more roads. It's not going to work. You know, and why we waste our time and so much energy trying to make something, you know, that, that, that's just too small to work. Why don't we take a look at a bigger picture? You know, I, I, I hear that we can't afford to have less population because it'll be destructive. Do we need all the people we have? We're having automation. It's going to replace a lot of people. A lot of people. So I don't have the answers. The one thing I could do is clean the streets, enforce the rules for the homeless to keep them from messing it up for other people, and uh, fix the parklets right now. Everything else is a long-term project as far as getting permits and stuff, getting through the bureaucracy and stuff. I can't do that. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know how to do that. Uh, it's well entrenched. It's government. Okay, Richard, I really appreciate your time. I learned a lot and uh, you know, you're definitely a very inspirational person in terms of your own personal story and, um, you know, how you were able to, to build yourself, build your business, talk about your family experiences. So it's my pleasure to, 
to talk to you. And, uh, you know, good luck. We're going to get an election this year. Maybe we'll see some uh, some change in <laughs> leadership from some of these new individuals as it relates to downtown. So well, I'd like to think so, but I don't know that they can do anything either. All right. Thank you, Richard. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you.